0: Well, it's the time of year when many of uh, us are thinking about school. I know a lot of you are doing that. And I, as I was thinking about it, it seems like I've been a student a good part of my life. Uh, I was a student from kindergarten to grad school. And I've been a parent of two students as they've gone from preschool to to grad school. Been on dozens of field trips to Toyota and Safety City and um, Pioneer Playhouse and zoos and museums. Our son and daughter are all grown up now, and our son teaches at Henry Clay, so he's all about education, and our daughter teaches part-time at Tennessee Tech. And I've been a, with school, in the school environment, I've been a coach and a referee and a scorekeeper and a, and a fundraiser and, of course, a taxpayer. But most importantly, I've been a teacher's husband. When Mary was teaching and when campus ministry was still a part of our lives, August was definitely the most challenging month of the year. Uh, Maybe September, too, and possibly October. Um, <laughs> June was awesome. We really loved June. However, we just had a lot of activity in August, uh, many nights away from home. I, I thoroughly appreciate what teachers do, and more importantly, who you are. Our son and daughter had a great educational and social experience in their years of student life, and they are, not, they are who they are, not because Mary and I are stellar parents, but because God is gracious. And he placed some key women and men in their lives who spent a lot of days with them, 50 minutes at a time. Uh, So I just wondered, you know, how many, if you work in education, you know, just stand up for a moment. If you're a teacher, an administrator, uh, on the maintenance crew, um, if you are a coach or support staff, you know, just hop up a second. We We need to thank these guys, you know. Thank you for uh, just thank you for what you do, because you most likely don't do what you do for the money or the perks or the free time or the fame, Uh, especially if you're in middle school, Um, because who remembers a middle school teacher, you know, they're just kind of forgotten along the way. As a middle school student, you're too worried about not getting stuffed in your locker or you're trying to hide the fact that you have, you know, metal in your mouth, you know, for the whole middle school years. But most, most everyone I know teaches because they have a heart for kids, and they have a desire to make a lasting difference, and they feel passionate about what they do, and that's a great combination platter. So today I have a message for teachers, but I believe the rest of us will be able to benefit along the way. Uh, I know you have a lot of things on your to-do list, but I ask you to take a few moments and focus on the big picture that you're facing right now because it's the beginning, and it's It's time to dream. So I just kind of ask the question, what are your dreams for this teaching year? I'd guess all of us have dreams of some sort, you know, maybe even just going into a fall semester. You dream of staying ahead on your lesson plans, and you dream of getting papers graded on time and going home at five finished with your work and keeping weekends free. You dream of orderly classrooms and colorful bulletin boards and uninterrupted planning periods. You dream of students who love to learn Students who only need to be told once, or maybe just students who don't pound on each other through the day. You dream of parents who stay involved at a comfortable distance. Parents who drop their kids off on time and pick them up on time. You dream of parents who take vacations, vacations during actual school breaks. Uh, you know, I grew to despise makeup work just as a husband of a teacher. You dream of a room full of beautiful children with straight A's and straight teeth. But then something happens along the road. The universal experience for dreamers hits, and high hopes collide with harsh reality. And over time, your dreams take a beating. Convictions to change the world downgrade to paying the bills. Rather than make a difference, we make a salary. Rather than look forward, we look back. And rather than look outward, we look inward. And this is only teachers, but it's, it's all of us. We all lose some passion and focus and direction in our lives at times. So how are we to respond when our ideals and our dreams and plans are getting buried among the reality of disappointments, intrusions, inadequacies, uh, unexpected and unwanted challenges? Let's make a quick visit back to a familiar person in the Old Testament who was living a dream, but suddenly got blindsided by reality. Her name is Esther, and she lived about 2,400 years ago in the town of Susa. Esther was Jewish, and she and her family had been taken uh, into slavery by the Babylonians and moved out of Jerusalem, and her story is truly incredible. It's kind of tucked away in the Old Testament that it's, it's not all that long. It's nine or ten chapters. I'd encourage you to read it uh, after you kind of hear the story today. In chapter one of the book of Esther, we learn that the king of Persia, his name was Xerxes, He decided to hold a huge open house. And as I read this, it sounds like uh, a parade of homes, except his was the only home on parade. He wanted to show off his wealth. He wanted to show off his status. And after the six-month-long open house, the king then threw this blowout party that lasted an entire week. He instructed his his staff to serve anybody, anything they wanted to drink. Everybody was invited. The next thing that happens at this bash is where it gets interesting. In chapter 1 and verse 10, we read this. When Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, that is, he's about to do something stupid that he wouldn't otherwise do if he were sober, he asked for his servants to fetch the queen. Her name is Vashti because he wanted to show Vashti off to the boys that were there. And she was described as lovely to look at. That's in verse 11 of chapter 1. Vashti, however, wasn't interested in being gawked at, so she refuses the, the king. Uh, she she kind of gives him a hand and looks away. Like, not going to do that. Um, maybe, maybe some of you fellows know that look. You know, you, you and you women can pull it off. You, you pull it out when the man in your life gives you the, uh, it's time to go, you know, thing. And you're just like, hold on, I'm not finished here. <laughs> it's not time to go just yet you need to know that refusing the king carries serious consequences. A couple of particular Jewish traditions say that the king's real request request is that uh, she come out wearing nothing but her crown. I don't know exactly what's going on, but for whatever reason, Vashti digs her heels in. The next part's pretty humorous and stereotypical of the male gender. Uh, The king gets... Hacked off at this woman for refusing him. So his pride's been battered publicly. Uh, For a while now, he's been complimented and slapped on the back and thanked and praised for about 187 days. And he's never felt better about himself. And then this happens in front of all the men she humiliates him. The king's wife refuses his request. So what does this make him look like? You know, who wears the crown in this family anyway? The king gets together, all of his executives, so you have a bunch of dudes in a room, and they all know what happened. They were there. It was ugly. Uh, They know their boss was made to look bad. And so a, a king and a bunch of guys, supposedly smart guys, in a room get pretty worried. Now, what do we know happens to the cumulative IQ when a bunch of boys in a room are together? It drops... It drops. <laughs> you know, let's be generous and say that the IQ in the room has dropped by half at this point, just being generous. And they do what a lot of us do, and we don't like the way something's going. They, imme- they immediately speed down the darkest road imaginable to the most negative extreme just to make their point stick better. This route is a cousin to the uh, slippery slope argument. Uh, do, you, do you ever use that route to get, to get your way? You know, to get people's attention. You exaggerate the potential downfall to extreme measures, hoping to cut the opponents off at the knees. It's, it's hard to have a meaningful conversation when this route is taken. So that's what these boys do. They dramatically say that there will be no end to the disrespect and discord husbands all across the kingdom will receive because of what Vashti has done to the king. In verse 18, it's kind of of interesting. They say there is no end. There will be no end to the disrespect and discord. It's going down that road. Wives everywhere now have been given permission to trash their husbands. Thanks to Vashti, all of the men are going to start getting the look, you know, the hand and the look. Um, In a brilliant guy move, they decide to get rid of Vashti. They kick her off of the throne. And they made an edict. That's kind of funny. That all wives will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. That was their great plan in this room of a bunch of dudes. Chapter 2 opens up with a search for a new queen to take Vashti's palace, our place. And this is kind of like a 5th century American Idol contest. They had local, regional contests looking for the most beautiful of women. And there was this young Jewish girl, her name was Esther, who had been part of this exile from Jerusalem. She lived with her cousin, cousin his name's Mordecai because both of her parents had died. Now, this next part's kind of interesting to me. Mordecai appears to encourage Esther to jump into this contest. And Esther follows his lead, and she immediately gets noticed by this dude named Hegai. Uh, he's the one in charge of the king's harem. So right from the beginning, Esther is taken special care of by this guy, uh, it kind of reminds me of the way Moses received uh, the treatment he received as an infant and then growing up in Pharaoh's palace, a kind of, you know, golden gloves treatment. Haggai ordered beauty treatments and a special diet for Esther, and she was assigned seven maids and was given the best room in the palace. Although God's name is nowhere to be found in this book of Esther, his fingerprint is everywhere. He is unmistakably Involved. It's no coincidence that Haggai pulls Esther out of the crowd and puts her on this pampered pathway. It's, it's just like God to do something like that. So she goes through 12 months of finishing in beauty school before being presented to the king. Um, there, the text tells us she goes through six months of oil and myrrh treatment, whatever that means, and she goes through six months of perfume and cosmetic treatment. I mean, this is crazy preparation just to meet the king. I mean, who would have thought this young Jewish girl with no parents a girl who had been cared for and looked after by her cousin, would win this beauty pageant. It's kind of along the same line. Who would have thought Leah would be the grandmother uh, listed in the line of Jesus or that Rahab would be in that same line or that Mary would be selected to give birth to the Messiah? Esther wins the crown, but when she's chosen, Mordecai tells her, don't tell anyone about your nationality. There's another interesting coincidence that happens in chapter 2, verse 11. Here's what we read. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Since Esther's been in the palace, Mordecai hangs out there a lot. Uh, He may be justifiably called a helicopter cousin. You know, and I'm sure you teachers get this uh, because you have to deal with helicopter parents, right? Parents who hover, making sure their precious little prodigy uh, isn't mistreated, and gets every advantage even more than anybody else. That's become a problem. You know, I've, I've listened to college folks talk about it, professors, and, I mean, it's, it's a problem at the college level, not just like in first grade. Parents calling their university professors about their 19-year-old's uh, grade on a paper or parents accompanying their 21-year-old to a job interview, you know. I heard of one middle school teacher who had a helicopter parent hovering, and this parent called him up one day and was not being very nice. And the parent said, how long have you been teaching anyway? He said, about 30 years. How long have you been parenting? (laughs) (laughs) You can use that one if you want (coughs) when you get that phone call. (coughs) One day, Mordecai's hanging around the king's gate like he does every day, and he overhears two of the king's disgruntled guards talking about scheming to kill the king. He tells Queen Esther about this, and she tells the king, and these two guys are soon hanging from a rope. So now we have two strange things that have happened. We have a Jewish queen in Persia, and we have an assassination attempt on the king of at Persia that's busted up by a Jewish exile. Neither of those happen every day. It looks to me like a few more signs of a divine fingerprint on this story. Chapter 3 starts with the introduction of another player in this drama. His name is Haman. Haman is the chief of staff for Xerxes. He's the king's right-hand man. And as you read through this book of Esther, you will find absolutely nothing good about this guy. Uh, his ego is insatiable. His grab for power uncontrollable. He wants everyone to know how great he is in his own eyes. I mean, he seems to be a full-blown narcissist kind of guy. For some reason, which you're not told, Xerxes promotes Haman to a very high position. In verse 2 of chapter 3, here's what we read about that position. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman... For the king commanded this concerning him. So, a situation is about to arise because not everybody is willing to bow down to Haman. Particularly, Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman. Everyone else in and around the palace was willing to play along except Mordecai. And because of that situation, Mordecai is all the self absorbed Haman can think about. Verse 5 When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Haman was not going to let this go. He was obsessed over Mordecai. He was enraged about this situation. And his rage led him to a highly irrational plan. Verse 6, chapter 3. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman acted on his obsessive rage and connived the king into signing a decree that would wipe out all of the Jews. And as the news got out about this scene, we move into chapter 4. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. This was a terrible, terrible day for Israel. The nation of people was universally devastated by this news. Esther, however, doesn't seem to be aware of what's happening right away. She does hear that Mordecai is distressed, and she sends someone to meet him. And Mordecai Mordecai explains all that's been going on. And Mordecai sends this urgent message to Esther. You've got to get the king to change his mind. Esther lets Mordecai know there's another law at play here. No one can approach the king without being summoned. If they try, they die. The queen is no exception to that rule. And Mordecai then fires back with the most famous line from the book of Esther in chapter 4, verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your, family's, you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to a, ro- a royal position for such a time as this. So Mordecai has a couple of bullets to fire in Esther's direction. Mordecai opens Esther's eyes to the seriousness of her, home, of her own plight. You will die too. And then he opens her eyes to the faithfulness of the God of Israel. Deliverance will come from another place. And finally, he throws down the ultimate challenge to her. Now is the time. This is the place. And you are the person. Mordecai believes God has authored this very moment in time. And who knows, he said, but that you have come to such a royal position for such a time as this. Now, how does a Jewish girl, an orphan, cared for by her cousin... An Israeli exile from Jerusalem, who's now in Susa, become the queen of the largest Gentile empire uh, around. I mean, did she earn that position? Was she simply following her dreams? She knows that the God of Israel has been holding her hand, sometimes leading, sometimes pushing, but always present. And she knows that he has brought her to this moment. We don't know how long it took for Esther to respond. I can't imagine her response was immediate because she understood the risk. This was no beauty pageant moment. Eventually, she sent this response to Mordecai. (coughs) Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So after three days of fasting and praying, Esther believed she was ready for whatever might happen. I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. She said, if I die, that's what's going to happen. There was, a, there was a depth to Esther, which may have been surprising, even to herself. So when the time was right on the third day, Esther pulled out her most attractive attire, and she made herself as beautiful as possible. And you know she spent all day intentionally preparing uh, to catch the eye of the king. Just like the day she won the pageant. She scouts out the perfect spot where he can see her way down the hall. And of course, everyone noticed her. You couldn't not notice her. She was stunning, right out of a Disney fairy tale. And she, set, she, she positioned herself and she waited. And she wondered, how will this go? Life or death? So when the king raised his head, his eyes peered down the great hall And her beauty could not be missed. He saw her, and he was so proud to to have such an attractive queen. Verse 2 of chapter 5, When when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. That, That moment had to be such a relief to her, a pleasing relief. He reached out his scepter, an invitation to enter And he asked her, what would you like? He said, I'll give you anything, up to half the kingdom. That's quite an offer, motivated purely by beauty. Uh, Did he really mean that? You know, I I don't know, maybe not. But Esther didn't think she could come clean with her request just yet. She couldn't just say, yeah, I'd like you to send your unalterable dictate to wipe out my people and send your chief of staff into exile. I mean, she, she knew she just couldn't blurt that out right then. So instead, she said... Would you come to a party? Oh, and Haman's invited as well. Now, this king loved parties. He would never turn down an invitation like that. And Xerxes had such a good time with his party, he made the same offer again. I'll give you anything, Esther, up to half the kingdom. Esther still didn't think the time was just right, so she invited the king and Haman to a second party. Esther's pretty wise. She's pretty slick. She seemed to have a divine sense of timing. And I wonder where that might have come from. At the end of the second banquet, Xerxes begs Esther to ask for something. So she shyly looks down at the floor and then raises her eyes to his. Well, now that you mention it, there's one eensy-weensy favor, you know, I'd like to ask you. And she proceeds to tell him about this raging anti-Semite who's been bent on exterminating her friends and her family and... She let him know Xerxes is about to lose his queen. And the king listens. And he believes what he hears. And he has Haman hung on a gallows that was built by Haman to kill Mordecai. So Haman gets Mordecai's rope. Mordecai gets Haman's job. And the Jews live to see another day. And there are, there are some more kind of surprising twists and turns along the way in that story. But in the end, the good guys prevail Uh, You know, Esther and Mordecai could never have orchestrated such a grand finale to their plan. Even though Esther wore the crown, God is the one authoring this crowning moment of this drama. So let me go back to the focus on teachers as we wrap this up. You all are going to face many moments this year which seem overwhelming. And it doesn't matter if you're a first-year teacher or a 20-year veteran. You will have days that challenge your plans and derail your dreams. Students can be extremely obstinate. Uh, We all were one at a time. We can be independent, flat-out rebellious. And you will wonder how some of them could be this way, and then you meet their parents. And it all starts to make some sense. Uh, You'll have days when you believe with all your heart you're in the wrong field, that you're going about things the wrong way, and that you don't think you'll make it to the end. There are two things from Esther which may be helpful for you to remember this year. The first one's this. God prepared Esther for her challenging moment. And he has prepared us for challenging moments we face too. You and I must be convinced of this truth or we could easily become overwhelmed. God doesn't expect us to have enough faith for what may happen tomorrow or next week. He equips us for today. And what happens today will equip us for what we will face tomorrow. Mordecai tells Esther, you've been prepared You've been groomed and shaped for this very moment and for everything this moment may hold. The bottom line is that God has brought you to this place. So when you're battling inside with doubt or confidence or about about how to love and guide a, a very unlovable student or how to respond respectfully to a disrespectful parent, believe that God has prepared you for this moment, this season. He's prepared you to spend the next nine months with this child that you find hard to connect with. He's picked you to be with that student because he's uniquely prepared you for that student. And your experience with this student is preparing you for something else down the road. So the first principle from Esther is that God has prepared you for this year. Hang on to that truth. The second one is this, that God will empower you to finish what he started. Esther's response is a great model for us. She said, let's, let's call on God because I can't do this on my own. And that was followed by her request for the Jews to fast and pray for three days. The sooner we realize we honestly don't have anything to offer without God empowering us, the better we'll respond to these challenging moments. And I guarantee you won't accomplish your dreams nor God's dreams this year if he's not empowering you. Uh, Here's a good word that I've picked up from John Piper, a short paragraph. Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. When you're dealing with a difficult parent situation, make sure God is the one empowering you. Your words, your attitude, not your anger, not your current experience, and especially not your pride. And as you all come together to be a team of teachers in your environment, it's, uh, make sure God is empowering you then too. Be careful not to throw students or parents or other teachers or board members or the administration under the bus during difficult seasons. I'm pretty confident that's not what God spent time preparing nor empowering you to do or to be. Instead, follow Esther's model. Ask those around you to pray for you to be prepared by God for the moment you face. And remember those two things. God has prepared you, and God will empower you. Let's pray together. Today, Father, we pray for those in this room who have a career in education. We pray that they will each see your greater purpose especially on their most challenging days and in their most discouraging moments. Give them compassion beyond their own capacity, patience beyond what they have to offer on their own, and wisdom beyond their years and experience. We also pray for all the students in our families. We pray that they will be able to experience a school year which teaches them the principles they need to know, but more importantly, leads them to personal growth and responsibility. Thank you for giving this church the opportunity to influence so many young lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.